My name is Heidi and I love stories, funny stories and sad stories and what on earth just happened stories. Well, as it turns out, the Bible is full of them. And after two decades in Sunday school, plus a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. Get ready. This is Messy Scripture. Ding dong, Ammon's dead. And in his place, his eight-year-old son Josiah takes the throne in Jerusalem. Josiah, by the way, is just awesome. Um, He's very much like Hezekiah before him. And to some degree, like Joash before him, but better. Josiah is just awesome. As with most of the awesome kings, there's not a great story here, but for a historical recap, let me throw it at you. Josiah repairs the temple, and in doing so, one of his priests finds the Book of the Law. They assemble all of Judah and read it aloud, and the depth of their falling away into the valley of the shadow of death is revealed to them, and so they reform the nation Josiah leads this reform and tears down all of the high places where worship to the Baals and Asherahs was taking place. He actually gets Judah back on the right track. And he doesn't quit. He goes hard for God, reinstating the Passover again and making sure that the Lord is actually king in Judah above him. However, The shadows of the future are already starting to cast themselves during Josiah's reign. For one, the prophet Jeremiah begins working the scene, and Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. It's very difficult to summarize Jeremiah in a sentence, but that pretty much sums it up. He also writes the Book of Lamentations, and while both of those are poetic, and therefore not necessarily the topic of this podcast... Just be aware that the prophet who is most known for writing stories of tragedy and great laments, that's why the book is called Lamentations, is already starting to work during Josiah's reign. Josiah followed God steadfastly and was a great king all of his life, but unfortunately he was killed by the pharaoh Necho at Megiddo. The pharaoh was out to get the king of Assyria, saw Josiah, and immediately killed him. Josiah's son Jehoaz takes the throne at the age of 23, and he sucks. He only reigns for three months, and he's immediately captured by Pharaoh Necho, and he dies in Egypt. Jehoaz's younger brother, Eliakim, whose name is changed, by the way, to Jehoiakim, is given the throne instead of any of Jehoaz's kids. So basically, his brother takes the throne. They both suck. Let's just get that out there. But God has also made it clear that he's not going to back down from the wrath he has committed against Judah, even though he didn't pour any of it out during Josiah's lifetime, because, again, Josiah was following God wholeheartedly. Manasseh was just so bad, and God could see it was not going to improve this situation long term. So Jehoiakim reigns 11 years in Jerusalem. And at this point, other prophets are starting to come on the scene. And the density of prophets is one of the ways that you can tell that things are getting very, very bad. Obadiah is working. Habakkuk is working. Zephaniah is working. People are here and making prophecies. To be fair, Zephaniah mostly worked during Josiah's reign, but his book was already written. So we've got some prophecies out there. At this point, we get to meet one of my favorite Bible characters who isn't a member of the Hebrew nation, who isn't from Judah or Israel, Nebuchadnezzar. He takes Jerusalem and Jehoiakim is forced to serve him as a vassal king for three years. However, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar and it doesn't work and he's immediately killed. And his son, Jehoiachin, or Jehoiakin instead of Kim, takes the throne and he reigns three months in Jerusalem. But uh, he also pushes back. And Jerusalem is finally sacked and taken by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The people of Judah 
are decimated. To take Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar starved the people out. Jeremiah writes of people eating their own children, starving to death in the streets where they stand. Meanwhile, the best of the best, the members of royal houses or people who had some special something, be it attractiveness or intelligence or wealth, were taken to Babylon to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to catch up with those people next episode. But first, let's sum up with the nation of Judah. The nation was completely gone, yes, but eventually King Cyrus of Persia would allow people to return. And Judah, to a very small degree, would be rebuilt. However, we're not there yet. That's quite a ways down the line. And so before we finish up on this episode where we've just pretty much eliminated the entire nation of Judah very quickly, it's time to turn our attention to the prophet Ezekiel. We've met him before, if you remember the super graphic episode at the end of the last season, you know, where God compares the Assyrian genitals to donkeys. That one. Ezekiel's known for flash, and it's kind of interesting to compare Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He's very serious. He treats the word of God inside him as, as a burning fire, something that he can't resist speaking, even though it's not really a, a place he wants to stand in. Ezekiel is more of a crazy performance artist who does all sorts of weird crap to try to get the people's attention. Now, it's all weird crap commissioned by God himself, but it's still frickin' weird. In Ezekiel 3, God calls Ezekiel the watchman for Israel. This is, in fact, where the title, Go Set a Watchman, comes from, from the book of Ezekiel, like as in, Go Set a Watchman on the Wall over the House of Israel. Here's the thing, though. As soon as he's got his call from God, which is pretty much the beginning of the book, God has Ezekiel carve a little picture of Jerusalem onto a brick and build little siege works and then put an iron skillet between him and Jerusalem so that it's clear that, you know, they're under siege. And then he tells Ezekiel to lay on his side and stare at this little toy, this this mural, this miniature of Jerusalem for 390 days. And during those 390 days, he's given a very specific diet, which is not quite as interesting as the way he's supposed to cook it. Ezekiel's all down with the 390 days and building the little figurines and the whole nine yards. But God tells Ezekiel to cook his food over human excrement. And Ezekiel's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I have never eaten anything unclean in my life. Please, please, please dial it back a bit. And God is like, fine, you can cook it over cow dung. If it seems like Ezekiel's message is basically, y'all are treating God in a way that's some bullshit. That's pretty much what's going on. It's not the only weird thing he does. Ezekiel also digs a hole in a wall while carrying a backpack, essentially, day in and day out, and everybody gets to see this crazy performance. When his wife dies, he's not allowed to mourn her. He has to go about stone-faced because of what will happen to Judah and, to and what has already happened to Israel. But I think the worst thing that happens in the book of Ezekiel happens in Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel looks at the temple and God sees everything that Judah is doing, sees all the defilements, all the terrors, all the horrors, and he leaves. The temple that Solomon had dedicated hundreds of years ago, it's not God's house anymore. So God leaves and he abandons Judah in that regard. The glory of God falling on the temple when it happened was so intense that they couldn't even carry out their jobs. And now, unbeknownst to the priests, they're carrying out their jobs, but God isn't there. 
at least not in the way that he was. Of course, God is still omnipresent. God is still everywhere, but not in the way that he had been, not a palpable physical presence, what's sometimes and often called the Shekinah glory of God. And Ezekiel prophesies and continues to do weird performance stunts, again, commissioned by God as a clear symbol, but still very bizarre orders, all the way through the captivity of Judah. At which time God's message is now one of hope, that he will restore Judah. Yes, he struck it down, but he's going to build it back up. And one of the most famous sections in the Bible about God's restoration is Ezekiel 37, in which Ezekiel sees a valley of bones, human bones, that are so dry that there's not even a sign of flesh left. And God brings them back to life, takes a valley of bones and makes them into a valley of standing people who can worship his name. The dead raise both symbolically and later in the Bible, quite literally, as we've already seen a couple times. Jeremiah is stuck with the pain and the deep hurt that Judah feels at the end. He's thrown into a dry well and the king has to pull him out by his waist so that he doesn't accidentally tear him in half because Jeremiah's message was so unpleasant. Ezekiel is able to prophesy quite a bit later, but in part because everything he did was so strange. But both Ezekiel and Jeremiah do have messages of hope. Jeremiah's in a deed that he buried in a field. He bought a field knowing that Judah was going to be captured and the deed was buried as proof that God would bring them back. Someone would dig it up one day. Next episode, we're going to catch up with the captors from the city of Jerusalem and find out exactly what it was like in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. That also means we get to cover two of the most famous stories in the entire Bible next episode. I am so excited. The next few are going to be absolutely wild. I know it's been a long stretch of history, a long stretch of kings after kings, but sometimes there's got to be kings. But next episode, we go back to God's favorite type of people, the ordinary ones who are willing to obey him. Catch you then. <laughs>